Good to see you guys. Um, we're going to be in the Bible. It's interesting. I, I, uh, <laughs> normally, I like to work out um, before I teach. It's actually kind of a release. It's not like a pump-up thing. It's like a, just kind of beat up your body a little bit, and then it just kind of actually relaxes me before I teach. Um, and I was getting ready to go. It must have been four, 4 o'clock or something like that. And I was back in my office because I email myself my notes. So I was at the laptop kind of trying to wrap up maybe a last point and how do I want to kind of conclude it um, and was getting ready. And all of a sudden I hear, I hear my wife saying, Mark, you were gonna, Mark, you're going to want to come out for this. And then I hear, and, uh, <laughs> and she goes, they're back. And uh, about a week ago, um, two Mormon missionaries had come by our house. And we recently sold our condo at our old house. Um, we got a chance to talk with some folks, um, and they never came back. But um, this time, they met my wife first, and she said, hey, you know, my, my husband isn't here right now. Um, if you can come back another time, weekends tend to work for us. Um, he'd be the one really to talk to, and the Mormons are super respectful about that. You know, you don't want some husband being like, you don't talk to my wife without me, blah, 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 all that nonsense and stuff. So uh, the Mormons are really accustomed to that, and so they, they received it. They, they wanted to honor that, and they came back, two young guys. Um, 19 years old, Thomas, um, and Olechi, Olechi, I think he said it was Hungarian. Um, and they came back and, and got to come in and we got to sit for about an hour or so. And, um, it's not an exact parallel of what we're teaching. How many of you were here when, when Zach and I did our true gospel series? How many of you were here when we went through Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons? We went through Church of, um, Science, uh, um, utilitarianism, that sort of stuff, or universalism, I should say. And so luckily I just went back, I pulled up my notes. I spent, spent some time just hanging out with them first, um, loving on them, caring for them, wanting to learn about their story, just being relaxed, just being human, you know, like just getting uncomfortable. Like I'm just, I want to hear what you guys have to say. I want to learn from you, um, learned about their parents and where they're from. One was from the Valley. The other one was from Utah. The one from the Valley moved to Boise. Now they're on their mission. One's waiting for his visa to go to India. They do this for two years. They go door to door. And and the whole time I'm just thinking they are willing to do for a false gospel what Christians won't do for the real one. This sort of discipline. um, I mean, I'm not saying we should. The Bible doesn't say that we've got to go, you know, house to house and spend two years. and, And I get that. But it's, it's fascinating that they are so diligent in that. And I, I, could, go, I could go for the whole sermon, just explain how we went through the issues and stuff. Um, suffice it to say, hopefully, I mean, I gave them my cell phone at the end. They gave me their email. They wanted my notes that I had used on that sermon. Um, we talked about the Bible. We talked about Jesus's words versus Joseph Smith's words. We talked about the scriptures versus their scriptures. We, you know, all this sort of stuff. And it was really cool. I'm hoping... I'm hoping that we get to that we get to hang out. I'm going to tell them if I get to communicate with them. I'm going to say, I want to go to temple with you guys. Like I've been dying to go to the temple in Thousand Oaks. I should have already done it, um, and just go to a service with you. Uh, I'll go to three services with you. I'll go to five services. I'll I'll go to Mormon Temple with you guys a lot, um, and then ask them if they want to come here. And so maybe at some point this summer, um, we'll bring them in. Maybe they'll take me up on that if if it gets to that point. But. Um, so it's not a direct parallel, but it, it's slightly interesting that that was my exercise before teaching on counterfeit faith. And so um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 8. If you haven't been here, we are in a series called Schemes. And so you see how I did that with the slide? See that? You weren't looking. You were looking at your Bible. Good stuff. But um, we're going through a series called Schemes. We call it a Slithery Sunday Night Series because I'm a marketer and I tend to do alliterations. And so um, we're taking a look at the primary schemes of Satan. And tonight we're going to be taking a look at counterfeit faith. And this one's going to be a little more nuanced. I just want you to know that. It's, I was talking with Chris. He's like, did you connect it? Because he's been asking, like, I've been kind of telling him this week. I'm like, I'm... It's there. I'm not making this up, but it's just not as, you know, kind of exegetical verse by verse. I'm going to show you kind of the grand argument, and then we're going to kind of take a look at three buckets. Um, it's all right there. It says that that's a scheme of, of, of Satan in one regard, but um, just 
prefacing that it, it might be a little more nuanced than we've had where our first week was on the lie and I showed you the lie, right? And then temptation and I showed you Jesus's temptation and accusation last week and how the devil accuses. And so this one's just going to require just an extra inch of brain power, um, but it's there. Um, I, I, um, I, I'm not worried at all in, in terms of that. So um, yeah, let me pray. I want to just I want to focus. I've been in Mormon notes for the last hour. And so um, I want to get back to what God has to do here. I think it'll work in. I, as I was telling Lynn, it'll probably, I'll probably on the spot, you know, make some parallels. I certainly didn't plan it, didn't know when they were going to come. But um, we will see how it all works out. Sound fun? Anyone scared? All right. So counterfeit faith. Uh, but let me pray. I, I may need it more than you. Uh, I'm okay with that. And so Jesus just asked that... Um, that our hearts would be settled before you right now, mine included, that um, as we come upon uh, perhaps a teaching that's going to convict many, if not all, myself included, but that we would front load the knowledge that you are there to immediately comfort us. And so I, I pray that we would, we would endeavor through the conviction, as we've learned that conviction is the Holy Spirit, condemnation is of the devil, but conviction is the Holy Spirit. So I pray that we would be open, that we would actually be excited for that, because it, 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 it's evidence that we're growing and we're strengthening in our faith and what you have done. And so I, I pray that we are ready for the conviction, just as an athlete is ready for the training, um, that we would be ready to be stretched and, and, and feel a little bit of pain because we know that immediately you're going to heal our wounds, you're going to comfort us in the end. And so for myself, I pray for that as I teach, um, for all of us as we all learn, and, and pray for my two friends specifically, Thomas and Olachi. Um, the, the Mormon missionaries, I pray that, um, that the questions they left with, that they admitted they had not wrestled with before, that, that they would not remember me, that they would not remember uh, my words, but they would remember, Jesus, your words, that um, I simply was faithful to give them, and that they would wrestle with that, and that they would, um, if anything, they would just, their shell would be a little cracked. Um, and, and I know that I'm not responsible for converting, um, and you are, and so I just pray for them specifically. Um, already have a heart for those two guys, just having met them today, um, and but have a have a, a, a an immense heart for those that are here tonight because they're your children. And so, whatever we're about to wrestle with, I pray that you would begin the comforting process sooner rather than later. But allow us that conviction because it's healthy and it's good. And so, we love you, praise you, Jesus. Can't wait to see you again. Amen. So, I had you open up to John eight. Um, you may need to turn a page. I actually, want to, we're going to start in verse thirty-one. Verse 31, so if in your Bible that requires a page turn, please do so. And why schemes? So if you haven't been with us, this is, this is out of 2 Corinthians 2.11. It says that we are to be ready in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are to be, una- or it says, for we are not unaware of his schemes. That's in the NIV. Uh, Your translation may say deception or something else like that. But in the NIV, it says, we are not unaware of his schemes. Um, First Peter five, eight says, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I'll say this now, next week we don't have Sunday night service because of Father's Day, but the week after that we will be back for our final and we will be taking a look at his final scheme. I'll give away what that is now. It's divide and devour. And it comes from First Peter 5, 8 that he is an adversary walking around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I've said this every week. I want to keep setting it up this way. The Bible tells us that we have a literal enemy. This is not a moral guideline. This is not a fear tactic. This is not a spiritual force. This is a literal enemy whose desire is not to annoy us. It's to destroy us. And he wants the destruction of our joy. As we learned last week, Satan knows that he can't steal your salvation, but he can steal the joy of your salvation. And joy and happiness are differently. And so he who's been placed in the Father's hand, no man can remove. If you believe in your heart, confess with your tongue, Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. You are saved, but he is resolute 
in the rest of his days, ensuring to the best of his ability that you do not enjoy the salvation that Jesus has secured for you. And so it's not that he can rip your salvation from you. It's that he can rip your joy of your salvation from you. And as, as Chris said, more so than the schemes of the devil, this is more than a series. It is a better series than simply focusing on the schemes of the devil. It's about the promises that we have in Jesus. And so more so than we have an enemy, we have a savior more so than he who wants to destroy us, we have a God who wants to love, who does love and wants to care for us. And more than an enemy who wants to devour us, the Bible wants us to know how Satan will try to destroy us and his promises in the midst of his God's protection for us. And so the Bible doesn't just want you to understand that you have an enemy and he hates you. It wants to equip you to resist the schemes of the devil. And so we looked in week one at the lie. We looked at the lie that Satan believed that got him kicked out of heaven as one of the angels, first created highest ranking angels. We took a lie that he believed that he waged war against God, got him kicked out of heaven. He slithered into the garden. He fed our first parents, Adam and Eve, the exact same lie that they themselves could be God. And it got them kicked out of the garden and humanity has been fractured ever since. And so we took a look at the lie. We took a look at the temptation. Satan lies to you. Then he tempts you. We took a look at the fact that Jesus knows temptation. He stands on the line of temptation with you and says, I have been here. It says he was tempted in every way. Most of us haven't thought about Jesus that way. We've thought that he basically cheated. Of course he didn't sin. He's God, right? That wasn't a thing for him. But in the hypostatic union, Bible nerd word for hypostatic union, that he was fully man and fully God, as he was fully man, he stepped up to the line of temptation. It says tempted in every way, every single way you have ever been tempted or ever will be tempted for the rest of your life. Jesus is the only God of all the false gods that the world has come up with. They didn't even get this right. He stands there and says, I know how this feels. He didn't sin. He didn't cross the line, but he stood on that line of temptation. And he looks to his left and he sees you and says, I've been here. I know. And so Satan loves to lie to us. He loves to tempt us. And he's reverse engineering the accusation because he wants to get to the accusation. He says, look, look, God doesn't really care for you. It's fine. He just wants to keep good things from you. So why don't you go ahead? Look, it's going to be fun. It's going to be easy. God's going to forgive you anyways. Don't worry about it. And then you do it. And he says, you're awful. See how that works? He gets you there so he can continue to pummel you. That's when, a, that's when a fight goes from fists to the ground. And now he's on a ground and pound and he's over you and he's accusing you and he's pummeling in what he wanted you to get to. He's been reverse engineering that accusation the whole time. And what we're gonna take a look at tonight, as I said, it's a just slightly bit more nuanced. We're gonna take a look at counterfeit faith. I want you to see that this is a scheme of Satan. And as we prayed, as I prayed with, with Chris and Tony, um, just know this, that I went through doubt this week in more, even in more of a sense than I normally do. I went through doubt going through the study. So if it all take the fact that I'm here and I can't wait to teach on this, though I went through the doubt, let that begin to comfort you that I went through what quite possibly you will go through as we go through three major categories of counterfeit faith and know that I struggled, have not only just struggled with them in my entire life, but I struggled with it this week because I'm doing the study and I'm like, oh no, is this me? And if you're wondering how that plays out, you have to stick around to the end of the sermon, but you need to know you'll be comforted in it, okay? And so this counterfeit faith, I looked it up. I'm a, I'm a nerd word, a, a, a word nerd. I, I love just looking at what the world says. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not. Merriam-Webster defines counterfeit as made in the imitation of something else. I love this. I didn't think it would have this made in the imitation of something else with the intent to deceive, with the intent to deceive. And so when you think counterfeit, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? I'm curious. Yell it out. Small enough group. We can hang out and chill. Money, right? We do, right? 
movies are made about it. Everyone that was a kid thought about it. Like, what if I could just have a machine that made this stuff, right? Y'all did. You prayed for it at some point. Didn't get it for Christmas, right? I did. Counterfeit, yes? Who's seen the movie Catch Me If You Can? Right? Y'all should see Catch Me If You Can, even if you don't like Leonardo DiCaprio, okay? Good movie. Um, I, I have a theory about Leonardo. He's only good if he has facial hair. Okay, if you go back through his movie history, if he has facial hair, great movie. If not, not so much. Okay, except What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Anyone seen What's Eating Gilbert Grape? Really early on, great movie. We're still talking about this, I know. But, um, but, but Catch Me If You Can is, is predicated on this guy's ability to produce counterfeit checks and money orders and cash them so good that the authorities couldn't catch it in time. By time you get it. This is, this is a big thing with online ticket sales, Yeah. You're, you're, you're buying a, tickets to LA Kings, Stanley Cup, or something like that. And you've got people, you can see claim department where people go there and they go to scan their ticket and it goes, eh. and they're like, what? I paid 600 bucks for these things. How are you going to ant at me? I'm like, ant said, you've been sold fake ticket. What are you talking about? It's a fake ticket. And that guy's long gone. And you paid online and there's no way to trace him. He's got a roaming IP. You can't do anything about it. And so, counterfeit, but I love that even Merriam-Webster says, with the intent to deceive. It looks like the real thing. It may fool others. It may even feel, fool you. It won't cost as much, but that's because it's ultimately worthless. So it looks like the real thing, and it won't cost you as much because it's ultimately Worthless. This is one of Satan's primary schemes is producing a counterfeit faith that imitates and deceives. And so let's read through our passage. Verse 31. It says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed, if you have a pen, please underline that. The entire sermon is based on the fact that he is speaking to Jews who believed. We're not talking about those who don't believe, okay? We're talking about those who, if, you, if they were here today, they would be like, what are you talking about? I, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. What are you talking I'm, I'm, I'm saved. I believe in Jesus. And so Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So he's, he's putting, dare I say, he's putting up a litmus test. We don't like that. We want it to be based on what we say, not what he says. I say I'm a Christian, therefore I'm a Christian. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. They answered him. Now notice what they do. Are they broken? Are they, are they humble? Are they worried? Are they fearful? Are they scared? Are they, are they on their knees? Are they begging? He says, no, they argue. He says, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say, they're talking to Jesus, how can you say you will be made free? They're arguing. Skip down to verse 37. This is where he answers them. He says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. It's tough. It actually gets tougher. I speak what I have seen with my father and you do what you have seen with your father. But he's going somewhere with this, watch. They answered him and said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Jesus is the best teacher to ever live. He's, he's turning this on them right before their very eyes. He says, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, were we not born of fornication? We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. Look at this. You are of your father, the devil. Jesus is identifying that they've fallen victim to a scheme. You are of your father, the devil, 
and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, character, your, your, your translation may say. He speaks from his own character. That's who he is. That is the, it is the purest thing that he does is when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own character for he is a liar. That's why we started the series with the lie and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not want to believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And I tell you the truth, which of you, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. And he was speaking to those who believed him. And he unveils, in their argumentation, he unveils that they have fallen prey to a scheme of Satan. And so what does this look and sound like for us? Well, I'm not a Jew. This is way back then. This is way right now. It may sound like this. I'm Christian. But you don't experience the fullness of joy found in Jesus that others speak of. Pastors say that, your friends say that, maybe your parents, or maybe they don't. You've heard of this fullness of joy. You've heard me say that joy and happiness are different. When your happiness falls, joy catches you. And you're like, I've never felt that. It's just, I'm a Christian, but when I fall, I fall hard. And I don't feel comfort. I don't have a peace that surpasses all understanding. I'm a Christian, but I don't, I don't, I don't experience the fullness of joy found in Jesus. You may say, I believe in Jesus, but your life isn't changing in accordance with what God says. I believe in Jesus, but your life hasn't changed in any way, shape, or form. You may say, I believe I'm guilty of sin, but you don't experience the freedom of forgiveness that Jesus offers. You've mentally understood the concept. I'm a sinner. You've got that. Look, I get it, Pastor Mark. I'm a sinner, and Jesus died for me, and he forgave me, but there's just there's no forgiveness in your life for yourself or for others. And you're constantly talking about the fact that Jesus forgave you. Why? Because you don't want to talk about the fact that you haven't forgiven yourself or others. And you get it here, but you don't feel it here. You don't experience it at the deepest part of your soul. You may say, I know about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. You can list off facts. You can, you can give me a biography. You might know more about the details of his life than me, but you don't know him. How many of you guys know of Michael Jordan? Anyone? I grew up, I, I was born in Chicago. I know some of you people, some people come up to me, they're like, hey dude, and you're totally contradicting yourself. You say you're from Minnesota and then you say you're from Chicago, which is it? Both actually. Grew up in Chicago during the Jordan era, Pippen, all those dudes, right? Anyone, raise your hand if you know of Michael Jordan. Stephen Curry, I'm sorry, okay? Stephen Curry. Anyone here know Michael Jordan? Like if I called him up right now, but really, you know Mike Bullikin, Really? He'd be like, I have no clue what you're talking about. Did he come to a game at some point? Millions of people did. How many of you know Stephen Curry? There's a difference, is there not? You can know of people. doesn't mean you know him. You may say, I believe Jesus is God. But he doesn't feel like your personal savior. I believe it. I'm a Christian. Why? Because I believe Jesus is God. What's your experience been with that? What's, what's your relationship with him like? That's weird. It sounds charismatic. I don't know what you're talking about. Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Man, is that how you speak about your friends? Right? Like, Mark, are you married? Yeah. How do you know? There's a paper in my house that says it. Describe Carissa on this date. It's good. Ventura County. Do you know her? You know. We, we don't talk about our friends that way. We talk about Jesus that way. I know. He, was a, he did this. He said that. But do you know? They say, I believe in God. But in times of struggle, you don't feel like your faith carries you through it. You may say, I've tried faith in Jesus, but it didn't work out. I've tried. I'm trying again. That's why I'm here tonight. I'm trying this again. I want to do this. I keep hearing that I should do this. So I'm here. And I've tried it before. I haven't gotten anything out of it. I'm hoping tonight will be different, but I doubt it. I'm asking you to consider, as I've been forced to consider this week, if you've been sold a counterfeit faith. 
a cheap knockoff. It looked like the real thing. Fooled others. My question is, has it fooled you? Did it have an actual transformative power? If not, we have to wrestle with whether or not we've been sold a counterfeit faith. Because what the Bible is saying here is that Satan just doesn't work to produce unbelief in people. I think most of us tend to think that. We think he's out there concerned with the atheists and the people that believe in some other religion. And that's the produce, that's the, that's the outcome of his work. And I think we rarely look at the fact that this passage says there are people who believe. They say, I profess Jesus as Lord. And one of Satan's schemes is getting them into that area under the guise of a counterfeit faith. It's every bit as lethal. So it's not that he's just producing atheists, it's that he's producing counterfeit Christians. As I said, this can be jarring. There's going to be comfort in that. If you're jarred already, good. I'll show you why. But you've got to stay with me. You can't leave. And I did want to note that a counterfeit faith can be the entirety of your faith, and it can be portions of your faith. You may identify with bits from each of the three categories that I'm going to present to the night. It may be that one of them speaks and the other two don't. It can be in different degrees, in different areas, in different pieces. Satan is fine with any sort of puzzle he can put together. Does that make sense? It can be the entirety of your faith. Some of us here could be entirely under the guise of a counterfeit faith. Some of us have fallen prey to some of the counterfeit faiths in the past. By the grace of God, we've moved beyond them. We can identify with them. Some of us are in one now. We were in a different one before. Some of us have experienced none of these yet. And this is a warning that at some point you may. But it's interesting to note that it says that these were the Jews who believed him. James 2.19 says, you believe that there is one God. You do well. I, use, I, I spoke about this tonight with the Mormon missionaries. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. People say, I, I believe in God. And I say, so do the demons. In fact, you believe in God. They know God. They've seen God. There is a reason Jesus came across the Sea of Galilee. He was taking a nap, super serious about naps. They woke him up. Storm was raging. He, as a man, was tired and he was napping. They woke him up, said, we're going to perish. The storm is raging. He stands up as God and he says, be still. And creation submits itself to him. They get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee after like the biggest CrossFit workout ever. They make it to the other side. They've rode the living daylights. They drag the boat on and there's a naked guy possessed with a demon running from the cemetery and he's been cutting himself. You had to know disciples were like back in the boat. Let's do this again. Like let's roll back to the other side. And this guy comes running down and he is possessed with a demon. And what did he do when he got to Jesus's feet? Did he slug him? Did he yell at him? He fell on his face why he'd seen his creator before. And he was on his face in front of his creator. He knows he has no dominion over Jesus. Jesus is not the demonic realm's opposing equal. He's the king above the entire realm. And demons constantly fall on their face in front of Jesus. Notice Satan in the temptation couldn't throw Jesus off the temple. He said, you got to jump. Why? Because no one throws Jesus off the temple. And Jesus was on the brink of death, 40 days, no food. Satan could have tried to push him, but he knew he couldn't accomplish it. That was not a beating, that was a sacrifice. He says, no one takes my life, I'll lay it down. So even if you believe in God, you'll do well, that's, that's, that's great. Just know that your faith level at that point is on par with demons, mine included. There must be a more... And so what I want to set the stage tonight for is three major buckets. Again, we've taught on, on false gospels. We've taught on the real gospel series. If you want those videos, they're online. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Universalism, um, Church of Science, uh, Jesus. The fourth one is like Science, Church of Science or something like that. Um, this is not false gospel. This is counterfeit faiths. I could, I could probably come up with more, but I saw three major buckets, three types of counterfeit faith, and I tend to go long anyways, and so we'll just keep it to three and see how long we go. But I want to set 
this up again as three types or stages or phases of counterfeit faith that will steal your joy in the person and the work of Jesus. And I would say the first one is called culturalism. So you could say culturalist faith, or I'm just going to go with isms for the sake of the study. Culturalism. A culturalist knows quite possibly a lot about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. Just like it would be very weird to you if you said, tell me about your wife, and I just listed facts. Not emotion, facts. I understood what the text said. I knew our marriage certificate. I know the dates that we met, what we did, what she said. Been there, done that. What she looks like, I can describe it. But you would know very fast, something's wrong with this guy. Like that's, maybe something's wrong because that's not how a guy should talk about his wife, just in facts, you know? And guys, if you just talk about your wife in facts, like knock it off, right? Like get a little romantic, spend a little time on Pinterest or something, you know? And so they may know a lot about Jesus. But as we saw in John 8, as we read, what was their confidence that they were disciples in Jesus? They said, hey, we believe in you. And we have Abraham as our father. We're good Jews. We went to church. We performed ceremonies. We stuck to the law since we were kids. And so what this produces in modern translation is, is faith by affiliation. I think this is an epidemic in, in, in America. I think we've fooled ourselves into believing the vast majority of people are Christians. I've seen the studies. The amount of people that identify with Christianity is yay big. In a series of questions, you get down to the person and the work and the salvific work of Jesus, and very few people actually believe it. They actually truly believe at the core in what Jesus says he would do and the fact that he did it. And so it produces this faith by affiliation. This is quite possibly how it may sound. I believe in God. I'm clearly not a Muslim. I go to church. I went to a private Christian school. My parents are Christians. I tend to vote Republican. It's obvious that I'm a Christian, right? Some way, shape, or form. What are we doing? We're listing off our qualifications. Look, it's clear. I've done the church thing. I've been in the church thing. Did some school thing. Okay, was, was, I've been reading my Bible. I've been doing my this. I've been doing my that. And again, you may know a lot about Jesus, but you don't have a transformative relationship with him. You know me, I hate bumper stickers, even though I talk in them all the time. And I hate the bumper sticker, but I like it at the same time. And it says, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. I'll defend the word religion too. We've, we've done that in the past, but it is truly a relationship. It is the person and the work of Jesus. So what's the difference? You're all saying, stop babbling. What's the difference between authentic and counterfeit? Yeah, just get to it. We have three buckets. You're long-winded, hurry up. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 Jesus is speaking. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard me say that a lot. I said it tonight with the Mormons. I said, we, we understand we're going to talk. We're going to use the same name, but I don't want to come to a crisis of terms. So let's look at what Jesus has said. Jesus has said, not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So at that level, we have to agree that not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Do we agree? Yes. It's a good place to start. It's with Jesus's words, not mine. Not me trying to convince them with philosophy but try and take him right to the words of Jesus. He says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. By the way, two years ago, this burdened me for about a year. Every time I would teach, and I was doing a lot more Sunday morning teaching, and God burdened me with this fact that I don't have to teach to this group about what other people don't believe, that there were very well a majority of people sitting in the room that said Jesus was God, but were not saved. And that's harder. You see this in the Bible Belt. You see pastors in the Bible Belt that say, it's the hardest ground because everyone thinks they're a Christian. He says, but he who does the will of my father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Jesus says to them, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. It's relational. He didn't say, hey, you didn't know anything about me. He said, you didn't know me. And that's why for some of you when, you, when you see a pastor or you see a friend or a parent or a spouse and you see them just, just enamored with Jesus, just 
seriously so sweet about what he's done. And guys have a hard time with this too. We're like, it's just kind of weird to talk about another dude like that. I'm already tripped out that Jesus calls me his bride and I see a whole dress and I can't do the whole thing. Like, let's just know about him. I don't want to know him. But when you get closer to Jesus, I'm telling you, you can't help but talk sweeter and more tender about him. Every day, by the grace of God, a little bit more enamored with him and his beauty. He says, I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In the Greek, there's two words for knowledge. I wrote down the transliteration. I stopped trying to actually put the word in my notes and then remember how it's pronounced. So I actually just wrote how it's pronounced. The first one is oida. The second one is gnosko. Two types of words for knowledge. See, in English, we suffer a lot because we'll use one word for a litany of things like love, right? Classic example. I love pizza. I love my wife. I hope those mean different things, okay? Had pizza last night. Love pizza. Pumped on pepperoncinis these days. Just throwing them under, right? And I love my wife. I hope that I'm talking about two different things, and yet we really only have one word. So we say, I'm in love. I know people that think they're in love with pizza, okay? Same with knowledge. There's oida, and there's gnosko. Oida is data and facts. You have a knowledge of something. You have data and facts. It's good. It's not wrong. That's not the word that Jesus says here when he says, I never knew you. He says the word gnosko, which is an internalized knowledge that comes only through personal experience. It's deep in your soul. There is, there is, you've heard me. I, I pray I've never led you to believe that, that our faith requires us to check our brain at the door. The opposite is true. But you need to know that this head knowledge is not the same as that soul knowledge of the person and the work of Jesus. He wants us to know him, not just know about him. And that's what I get so excited about. That's why I was actually so excited to speak with Mormons. I used to want to just debate and get them to agree And now I just get to talk about a real person in a way that you can see they haven't heard described before. I have in my notes, Ricky in Nashville. I I run a clothing company. I wore this on purpose, not just for advertising, okay? Um, I have a clothing company. It's a side little t-shirt business. Started a couple years ago with two friends. It's enabled me to meet some incredible people. I'm connected with some of my favorite bands just because I have a t-shirt company. I just got connected with another band, Uh, this week. I've gotten to meet people through Instagram, through Facebook, through Twitter, through all sorts of stuff. I'm starting to go out and meet people. Just did it with a photographer from San Francisco. So all all the older folks that bag on the internet, you know, all day, every day, you can overdo it. But at the same time, it can be used for good. I can connect with people that I never would have connected with before. And my friend Ricky is one of those guys. Long story short, he was dating a gal that we were using as what's known as an influencer. We send her stuff. She posts it on Instagram. My friend Danielle is arguably one of the greatest um, impacts on our clothing business early on. She skyrocketed us on Instagram. He was dating Danielle. Danielle broke up. She moved to Nashville from Florida. We kept in contact with Ricky and Danielle. Eventually, he went to Nashville. One of my partners, Nate and I, decided, oh, uh, even better. Then he, then he texts me one day. He says, hey, what are you guys doing on Saturday? I said, I don't know. What are you doing? He says, I'm in town with August Burns Red. It's my favorite band. I peed a little. Okay. I, so it's my favorite band. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, come to the show. I'm like, cool. We go to the show. We go up to the tickets. Like, where are the tickets? I said, VIP. I'm like, it's happening. So I walked over. I got my VIP. I walk in. He's in backstage. So he gets, he's getting the sound. He's a sound guy. We're in the back and I'm standing there waiting and waiting. All of a sudden I look over. There's August Burns Red and they're practicing. I peed a little bit more. And I'm just like, it's happening, it's happening. So we go to the show, it's amazing. Then Ricky's like, come on, let's go hang out. You know, let's go chill. I was like, where, where are we going? You want to go to a restaurant? He's like, the tour bus. He's like, idiot, we have our own house. I'm like, we're going on the tour bus. We're going. So we went on the tour bus. We're sitting there, we're just having a good time. We're talking. Then the band comes on and I really started peeing, right? And so like, like the whole band comes on. I got a picture. They're just like, hey, the guys from Africa's this sort of stuff. It's like, this is Ricky. So we, we love Ricky. I went up the very next day, went up to Monterey. We rode the coast together. It was crazy. I did 19 hours on the motorcycle that day. I woke up at like three o'clock, didn't get home till 11 or something ridiculous. Like just, and then he moved to Nashville. We're like, you know what? We just want to go to Nashville and hang out with Ricky. 
So Nate and I fly out there on like a Friday night. We're going to do a 48-hour flip trip. We go out there and we hang out. He he takes us downtown Nashville and we hang out and we're talking some business and meeting his new girlfriend from Tasmania. And then we go back to his house. And if if this stumbles you, I'm sorry. We go back, we have a glass of scotch. And and he says this after after we're we're, we're just, we're, we're deeper into conversation. We're hanging out. We're past all the formality. And, and it's late, and he just goes, he goes, guys, how, how, like, how does the whole, like, like, you're Christians, how does that work? Because you, you don't think, like, oh, those guys love Jesus, right? You're just like, he's like, and he looked at me, he's like, the, your, your pastor, too? Because he knows I'm a, I'm a director of marketing and clothing. He goes, and then he said this, he goes, you guys talk about him like you know him. And I remember Nate, big muscle Nate, like huge, my buddy partner. He just like, he leans back on the couch. He's like. <laughs> and it's because I do know him. And, and Ricky was fascinated to hear about Jesus as if I was describing Chris, my friend. Jesus is better than Chris. Chris is trying. He's got the beard and everything. But like Jesus is better. So like how much are they? I'm trying. I've been doing this for like three years. It's not coming in. And, and, and if Jesus is so much greater than Chris, and I could describe Chris in, in great depth and the times we've had and the things we've learned and shared and cared for each other and the struggles we've gone through together. If I could describe that about Chris, how much more should I be able to describe that about Jesus? But I think a lot of us can't because we know about him. We don't know him. And so the cultural Christian says that they oida Jesus. They know Jesus. But they don't gnosko Jesus. They don't have an, a deep knowledge, a personal relationship. And I would argue, who watches Walking Dead? Raise your hand, sinners. Raise your hand. Come on. No, I'm just kidding. I do too. I, I, I love the show. I love the fact that every season it becomes less and less about the zombies and more about the people. You notice that? Right? It, it does this. It's, it's, it's a brilliant show. I think it's amazing. Even my wife who doesn't, didn't like all the eating early on and she got into it. But what is so scary about zombies? What's the freakiest thing about zombies at their core? They don't sleep. They don't sleep. That's true. I know a lot of college students that don't sleep too. It, is it not that they resemble being alive, but they're actually dead? Is it not that they stumble around appearing to be alive, but everyone knows that they're actually dead? Is that they're imitating life, but they're living in death? And it produces that cultural Christians, a cultural counterfeit faith produces the motions of life. I believe in God. I went to a Christian school. I'm going to church. I'm here, Mark. I'm doing the things. Right? But we're not actually alive in Christ. We don't know him at the deepest level of our soul. Produces a walking dead faith. Jesus wants us to know, as your pastor, I want you to go from knowing Jesus died for sinners to knowing that Jesus died for you. I want you to go from knowing that Jesus loves people to knowing that Jesus loves you. I want you to go from knowing that Jesus cares for people to knowing how Jesus cares for you. A cultural faith is a counterfeit faith intended to steal your joy from a genuine faith in Jesus. The second one, that's culturalism. The second one is moralism. Moralism. The premise is that God accepts good people and rejects bad people. Plagued with this in America as well. God accepts good people, rejects bad people. The perfect, this is, and, and, and to be honest, this is a perfect example of a counterfeit. Why? Because the moralist faith will produce someone that on every level appears to be an authentic Christian. Why? Because they love to follow God's laws. They may actually look like a better Christian than you. I have always said this about our Mormon friends. They do Christianity better than we do. They 
do first century community. If you go to Utah, there are entire grocery stores that make virtually no money so that they can sell food to the Mormon community at the lowest possible price. They build entire neighborhoods for people. I have photographers that shoot for my clothing company that are Mormons that moved into a neighborhood where the church had just taken care of it. They take care of their community better than modern American Christians. But moralism won't save you. Being good won't save you. Being awesome at following laws won't save you. And so it can be very tough to see. It's tough to spot. A moralist and authentic Christian can look almost identical. I I pulled out this quote. About 50-something years ago, there was a famous Presbyterian minister. His name was Donald Barnhouse. He was asked to come on CBS radio. I love this question. Um, and he had, he had uh, this quote actually goes on much longer. I cut it because I know how long I go in general. But it was a fascinating question the host asked. He said, what would it look like if Satan took control of the city? And they were talking about Philadelphia. What would it look like if Satan took control of a city? I'm willing to bet most of us think rampant crime, right? Like riots, like absolute debauchery. It would look like Vegas at night all the time. Brilliant answer. Barnhouse speculated, if Satan took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. And pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing, children would say yes sir and no ma'am and the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached he said that's what it would look like if Satan took over everything would look awesome churches would be filled so long as the person and the work of Jesus was not being preached The difference is that a moralist trusts in their obedience. The Christian trusts in Jesus' obedience. The moralist believes that they have been good. The Christian believes that only Jesus is good. The, The moralist believes, or the moralist follows God's command to receive God's approval. The Christian follows God's commands because of God's approval. The moralist believes their, work ha- their works have earned favor in the eyes of God. The Christian believes that Jesus' work has favor. Only Jesus' work has favor in the eyes of God. The moralist trusts in how much they know about Jesus. The Christian trusts in the Jesus that they know. The moralist believes they are accepted by Jesus. The Christian believes they are accepted in Jesus. And I don't know if you guys know this. I'm not bagging on VeggieTales. My kids watched at least one episode this morning. But I don't know if you know that the creator of VeggieTales publicly repented after 10 years of creating that show. His name is Phil Vischer. He publicly repented of this. He said, I look back at the previous, again, not condemnation of VeggieTales. Has everyone seen VeggieTales? Anyone not know what it is? Okay, it's a bunch of vegetables going around taking, teaching lessons. Totally freaks me out. Okay, that's why I don't go to Disneyland. Y'all think Disneyland is awesome? It's not. It's freaky car- cartoon characters that are huge and scary, and they come at you from all angles. The place is seriously a work of the devil. Okay, I hate Disneyland. I know some of you are super pissed and never coming back. I'm sorry. But, but VeggieTales is a little freaky, but it's this cartoon, and, and vegetables are teaching lessons. And Phil Vischer... I don't really hate Disneyland. Relax. Jeez, it's like, thought I said Jesus wasn't God or something. And so um, he says, I look back on the previous years and realize that I had spent 10 years trying to convince kids to behave Christianly without teaching them Christianity. He said, and that was, pretty, that was a pretty serious conviction. You can say, hey, kids, be more forgiving because the Bible says so. Or, hey, kids, be more kind because the Bible says so. But that isn't Christianity. It's morality. And it's dangerous. There are a lot of people walking around who appear to be Christians and they're actually moralists. Some of you here tonight believe you are a Christian and maybe under the guise of moralism. There's also a lot of people walking around who 
who appear to have rejected Christianity, but what they were actually in rejection of was a cheap counterfeit faith of moralism. And to them I say, good. Let all Christians reject the cheap counterfeit faith of moralism. And for those that have done that and said, my friend brought me here, I didn't want to be here. I rejected Christianity. It was a bunch of hypocritical jerks. Welcome, there's room for another. Christianity is not primarily a set of rules on how to live to avoid punishment from God. Christianity is primarily about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, not to avoid punishment from God, but to take it on our behalf. Christianity is about Jesus. The bottom line is that true, life-changing, heart-regenerating faith in Jesus simultaneously gives life to righteousness while killing self-righteousness. It gives life to morals while killing moralism. It gives the life of Jesus through the death of self. Self. Our process, remember we talked about process and position of righteousness? Some of you are confused because you know your position of righteousness. God says you are righteous, but you're struggling with your process. You're like, but I still sin. And Satan wants you to base your position of righteousness. It's like, really? Are you really considered a beloved child? Because look what you've done. The Holy Spirit says, look what I'm calling to you to do because of who I've said you are. And so your position and your process, Satan wants your position to be questioned because of your process. The Holy Spirit says your process will be an outcome of your position. It's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. Moralism says I have work to do. Christianity says it is finished. And number three, so that was moralism and it is intended to steal your joy of your salvation and the personal work of Jesus can't steal your salvation, but he can steal your joy. And the third is consumerism. This is where I am. I got over moralism a little after college. I was entrenched in it in high school and in college, the moralistic version of a faith, the moralistic con- the counterfeit. It's about the rules. It's about getting people to act right and be good Christians. This is where I struggle now. And I believe that it actually is more likely that you struggle with this later in life. It's consumerism. You may remember Zach and I have beat on this dead horse a couple times and we're gonna continue to beat it. It says, I will follow Jesus so long as it's beneficial to me. It says, so long as I get more of what I want, more of what I desire, more attention and affection from others, more health and more wealth. If not, I'm out because I thought Jesus was for me. And so if I don't get the things that I want, he's not for me, so I don't need him. Matthew 16, 24 to 26. And Jesus said to his disciple, if anyone desires to come to me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. A cross is not a light, cute thing. Like, hey, pick up your backpack and follow me. Oh, it's kind of heavy. This is like saying, pick up the electric chair. Pick up the entirety of the firing squad. Pick up the lethal injection table. That's what he's saying. Pick up the lethal lethal injection table. Put it on your back and follow me. He says, for whatever desire, for whoever desires to save his own life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his whole soul? Jesus says the way to follow him, listen, the way to follow him is to cast a death sentence over your life. And we don't connect how to do that. But know that this call, I'm going to try to explain it a little bit. This is giving Jesus full authority over every area in our life. This is letting Jesus decide how much he will require of us. This is not us deciding how much we will allow him to require from us. Anyone ever written a check? So if you're under 35, you don't have to raise your hand. It's the old school form of Venmo, if you don't know. Okay, so they used to have these barbaric pieces of paper that used to, have to take to the grocery store. By the way, grocery store lines used to take eight hours because people were writing checks. Okay, and so what a check does um, is obviously have money behind it, but it's a piece of paper that you give to someone to cash, and then the money transfers. Yes, still tracking millennials. I'm one of you. 
Okay, still got a rest- I'm 36 year old millennial, so I'm barely a millennial, but I'm still there. How many of you have never written a check in your life? It's okay. Don't. Yeah. Good on you. I love it. I'm digital. I'm like, just square me. Okay. Or something like that. Just Venmo me. But, but who knows what a blank check is? Anyone gone through the process of a blank check? Yeah. Right. You got to be a little careful, right? What do you do? You say who it's to, maybe your memo, maybe your date. You sign it. You give it to someone and it's on them to put in the amount that they require. Yes. Right? Some of you are like, that is the dumbest thing. I'm so glad I'm a millennial. You all did that? That's no wonder my parents don't have any money. <laughs> right? Okay. You give a blank check. You put the trust of all that you have in the hands of that person to write what they will require from you in case you, you got in a wreck or you sent your kid off to camp and you didn't know. I don't know. There could be a, a litany of uses for it. This is the call is to give him a blank check. It asks us to trust that he will decide how much to sacrifice and require from us. He wants us to trust that he is good and that he is worth anything that it could cost to follow him. Instead, consumerism wants to give him a gift card. We all understand gift cards. That is what? A predetermined amount that you are willing to part with, yes? And says, here you go. And it can be big. Like you can go gangster and be like, hey, homie, 50 bucks iTunes, you're welcome, right? I don't even know if people buy music anymore. Like $7 to Spotify, whatever it is. But you get to determine, even if it's big, you can give a gift card for what? A ton of money, thousands of dollars. But you declare how much you're willing to give, yeah? A blank check says, I trust that you will take what you require. The authentic faith He says, pick up your cross. He says, cast a death sentence. Give me authority over that. He says, give me the blank check and trust in what I will do with it, what I will fill out the amount for your good and for my glory. But we say, tell you what, here's a hundred bucks. Here's how I will serve you. Here's where I will serve you. Here's how far I will go. And if we cross that line, I'm out. If you ask me to leave, I'm out. If you ask me to go too far, if you tell me that I got to bounce from California or I got to stay in California, I have to go to this college and not that one. If you shut this door, then it's clearly not of your will and I don't need you anymore. And we fall into consumerism. I go through this. This is part of, I think, part of, of, of growing older and career and, and, and steering a family. And I start to fall into this. It says, look, God, I've got, I got a lot of things and I'm responsible for. California mortgage is not cheap. I don't know if you know that. Um, and, and we start to go through this, I think, on a, on a grander scale as we get older. We want to give Jesus a predetermined amount. Consumer, consumerism says, here's how much I'll give you. And Jesus says, that's a counterfeit Faith, and here's how counterfism, counter consumerism, consumerism plays out. There will come a day when everything you desire and the entire world around you says, Go this way, and Jesus says, Go that way. And that will be the moment. If you haven't been there yet, you might be there now. If you fall prey to consumerism, as I have, you will hit full force. The world, your desires, everything you think, everything you feel, everything you believe says this way. And Jesus comes because I know him personally. And he says, Mark, that way. And that's the moment of truth. This may happen in terms of reputation. Am I willing to be seen as different for my faith? This may happen in forgiveness. Am I willing to forgive that one person in, their mon- in, in your money, am I willing to trust God with my first fruits and my finances? With fellowship, am I willing to be part of a local church to give of my time and treasures and talents to God's body of restoration on the earth? Consumerism is a counterfeit faith that gives a gift card instead of a blank check. Consumerism limits what we do or give to God based on what we get in return and it steals our joy because it attempts to put us in control rather than opening us up in faith to the God who came to give us life and life more abundant. So maybe at this point you're thinking, oh shoot, in one area, in most, some to greater degree, if you're like me, you may be saying, am I saved? In John 8, as we read, we see that Jesus afflicts the comfortable 
and comforts the afflicted. And I want to give you two comforts. If you are at all provoked by this sermon, if you are at all provoked by the truth, if you've bet in all, at all wrestled with this scheme, I want to give you two comforts. The first, and I've said this multiple times, in fact, I sat here last week with a gal for an hour and a half after everyone left. She was saying, I don't know if I believe. I am scared that I don't believe. I, I fear that I don't believe. And I said, do you know who doesn't fear if they're saved? People who aren't saved. They don't even think about it. If you're at all uncomfortable, if you're at all introspective, if you're at all examining yourself, it is evidence of salvation. Conviction is a sign of salvation. Because as I've said, those who aren't convicted, those who aren't saved, aren't convicted. They hear it and they're like, presentation was off, you went long, wore a weird shirt. I don't know what everyone's crying about, right? They're not worried about it. If you're at all in a self-examination and discomfort, it's evidence of salvation. The Jews who believed responded in argumentation. If you respond in humility and brokenness and fear even, it's okay. I've heard it said this way, a fear of God's absence is evidence of God's presence. So the first is that if you're at all uncomfortable or reflective or introspective, it's an evidence of your salvation. Comfort number two, Jesus later in John or in Matthew 17 as well says, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, it's the smallest of all seeds. Has anyone seen a mustard seed? No, you haven't. It's too small. Right? <laughs> Maybe you have. It's tiny. He says, if you at all have a faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there. And it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So if you're at all stirred by this, if you're all curious about it, if you're somewhat scared that you're convicted by it, if you're at all convicted or introspective about it, know that that's evidence of salvation. And Jesus says, if you have but a shred of faith, he says, that's enough. He says, you'll move mountains. The smallest seed of faith is enough. Why? Because it's not the strength of our faith that saves us, but the object of our faith. And I've said this before, Faith alone doesn't save you. People are like, that's heresy. Faith alone doesn't save you. It must be faith in an object that can save you. I've said it before, if you're drowning in a pool, there is no one around. And you put faith in a Skittle, you're drowning. Taste the rainbow on the way down, but you're drowning. You put faith in that, that weird looking ring, that lifesaver, that all pools have, you put faith in that, that object has the ability to save you if it comes to you. And so it's not the fact that I have faith, it's that I have faith in the object and that that object will come get me where I am. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He didn't say, I can save you, I just can't get to you. He said, I will get to you to save you. And even those who reject me, I will die for them. And so if you have barely enough faith to say that Jesus is Lord, it's enough. If you have barely enough faith to share a gospel with a friend, if you have barely enough faith to serve and to tithe to the church, if you have barely enough faith to forgive that one person, Jesus says, it is enough. If you have barely enough faith, it is better than a counterfeit faith. Take comfort. Amen. Let's pray. God, I pray that, that you would do mighty things in the hearts of your children tonight, that you would care for them in ways that I can't, even as their pastor, that, that you would nurture and comfort them. You would meet them where they are as you've met me where I am. You would identify the areas in our lives where we have fallen prey to the schemes of culturalism, moralism, 
God, I ask that you would pour out your grace. Just thinking of that mustard seed. That you would take a spark of faith. That you would convict us, but that you would comfort us. That you would pour out on that tiny bit of faith. And would you create a blossom? God, some of us are scared, fearful, unsure, doubt, convicted. And I pray that we all be comforted, that that's evidence that we have your peace. That we're open to being convicted. And God, now we're open to your desire to comfort us. And so would you touch the hearts of everyone here tonight in a profound way as we sing to our personal Savior who's alive and reigning for our good, for your glory. Amen.